The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. You will not believe the latest pro-abortion rhetoric. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, I don't know if you followed what has happened with the House bill, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. All Republicans voted for it. All but two Democrats voted against it in the House. And Representative Jerome Nadler said that this bill could be dangerous to the infant. What? Are you serious? Friends, this is going to be an eye-opening show today. And I'm also going to take your calls a little bit later in the show. So now's a great time to call anything you want to talk to me about. Any subject of any kind that relates in any way to the line of fire, you want to give me a piece of your mind on something, here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Any question of any kind, random Bible theology, doesn't matter where we're opening the phone lines a little later in the broadcast. Well, they're open now, but I'll take your questions a little later. So now is a great time to call, and then this way we'll get to your questions in a little while. This month, our thrust has been, let's get healthy. Let's get healthy. At the same time, our health requires that we are morally and spiritually clear. That's why every day we serve as your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. That's why every day it's our goal to infuse you with faith and truth and courage. It is a healthy church that will change the culture, not by taking over and dominating and forcing everybody to live by our standards. No, all that will create is resentment and rebellion. No, instead, we do it by shining light that dispels darkness. We do it by speaking truth that pushes away lies. We do it by refusing to compromise in our own lives, in our own ethic, that we live godly, righteous lives by the grace of God, that we serve others, that we love others, that we win them to Jesus, that we help them embrace life-giving biblical values. And doing that, culture changes. It just happens by by an automatic process, by osmosis, by the gospel growing and, and by the church doing its work, and by setting a godly example. So we are going to confront evil in the society and we, we pray for everyone. I do not put my trust in the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. And you know, if you listen regularly, I'm not a political pundit. I'm issue driven. Have you heard me talk about the, the Hunter Biden laptop scandal? Have you heard me talk about the classified documents at, at President Biden's uh, home or at, at Mar-a-Lago with President Trump? Or I'm just not on those things. Yeah, they're worthy topics. They're important topics, but I'm not there. You're not hearing me bash the president every day or attack the Democrats every day or rip into Republican hypocrisy every day. That's not my focus. And we are here ultimately, as I've said before, not just to get your blood boiling, but your faith rising as well. Not just to point out here's the problem, but also to point to the solution. All right. So I'm going to read to you the text of this bill. For those watching, we'll put it up on the screen for you. Uh, the bill establishes requirements for the degree of care a healthcare practitioner must provide 
in the case of a child born alive following an abortion or attempted abortion. Specifically, a healthcare practitioner who is present must, one, exercise the same degree of care as would reasonably be provided to any other child born alive at the same gestational age, and two, ensure that the child is immediately admitted to a hospital. Additionally, a healthcare practitioner or other employee who has knowledge of a failure to comply with the degree of care requirements must immediately report such failure to law enforcement. A healthcare practitioner who fails to provide that required degree of care or a healthcare practitioner or other employee who fails to report such failure is subject to criminal penalties, a fine up to five years in prison or both. Any an individual who intentionally kills or attempts to kill a child born alive is subject to prosecution for murder. The bill bars the criminal prosecution of a mother of a child born alive under this bill and allows her to bring a civil action against a healthcare practitioner or other employee for violations. Okay, so key things. Baby's born, it survives an abortion. Someone is trying to abort the baby. The mother goes to the abortion clinic, mother and father go, whatever. They, they have a procedure to abort the baby, but the baby survives. All right, let's say it's, it's late in the pregnancy. Let's say the baby's 24 weeks old and it survives the abortion. Well, this bill says you must provide the medical care that you would for a naturally born child at that age or a child born by C-section or something. In other words, one that they weren't trying to abort and get the baby to a hospital immediately, right? Because it's probably an abortion clinic and they will not have everything needed to care for that baby. So Representative Jerome Nadler, who is long-term, long-time uh, pro-abortion, a, poli- a political leader based in New York, uh, he vigorously opposed the bill. And I want you to hear his reasoning. Listen to what he said. All right. Not sure what happened with our clip there. Uh, looks like just checking over with our team here. Okay, let's let's take a listen to what he said. The problem with this bill is not that it makes anything that it is not that it provides any new protections for infants. The problem with this bill is that it endangers some infants by stating that that infant must immediately be brought to the hospital where, depending on the circumstances, that may be the right thing to do for the health and survival of that infant, or it may not. That is the problem with this bill. It, it, it um, um, directs and, and mandates a certain medical care which may not be appropriate, which may be endanger the life of an infant in certain circumstances. That's why we oppose this bill. Not- All right, so <laughs> did, did you get that? Did you get that? We're, we're not opposing the bill because it's providing medical protection for, the, you know, assuring that the baby gets medical care. But, but if you insist it goes to hospital, it could endanger the health of the baby. Well, hang on for a second. With all respect, sir, are you genuinely telling me that that is your real concern, the health and well-being of that baby? Then why did you support aborting it one second earlier? In other words, if that baby was killed during abortion, that would have been perfectly fine. Right. Go ahead. That's that's what happens. Yes, she chose to abort the baby. That's just fine. Now the baby survives. Oh, we got to be very careful about the health of the baby. Taking it to the hospital could endanger it. 
So the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act is dangerous for the baby? <clears throat> He's not the only one that said that among the Democrats. Uh, listen to Representative Jan Schakowsky. She gives a similar argument. Listen to what she had to say. As, uh, as our chairman had said, not only is it illegal to not care for a born infant, but the, the law that you have provided on the Republican side actually can create more harm. It requires immediately taking a struggling baby to a hospital. That hospital could be hours away and could be detrimental to the life of that baby. This is nothing more than the part of the effort to make abortion illegal nationally in this country. I object and I urge a no vote and yield back. All right. Well, the thing that's truthful in that statement that's accurate is that the Democrats look at this act as an attempt to make abortion illegal. In other words, if if the abortion provider can't guarantee that they're going to do this, then you can't get abortions, etc. And they're trying to make it illegal. So that's the argument. At least she says that part plainly. Now, now, Representative Nadler previously in 2018 raised sim similar arguments. I'm, I'm looking at a statement, his official uh, website, Rep, uh, Rep Nadler on the Born Alive Abortion Survivor Protection Act. This is 2018 because these bills keep coming up. A cynical ploy, he calls it, to appease anti-choice protesters in Washington today. And, and he says, I'm in strong opposition to the bill. Despite what its supporters would have us believe, this legislation would do nothing to enhance protections or the quality of health care if an infant is born after an attempted abortion. What it would do, however, is directly interfere with the doctor's medical judgment and dictate a medical standard of care that may not be appropriate in all circumstances, which could, in fact, put infants' lives at greater risk. Uh, he goes on to say, when I supported the Born Alive Infant Protection Act in 2002, my reasoning and the reasoning of my pro-choice colleagues was simple. Killing an infant who was born alive either by an act of omission or commission is infanticide. All right, we agree on that. It was, he says... It was, is, and always should be against the law, and we saw no harm in reaffirming that fact. And he says it passed in a bipartisan way. And here's what he claims, that it is currently the law, and it has been for years, that you must provide adequate medical care for the baby that survives abortion. That that is the law, and that you don't need to have these other bills, which he and his colleagues say the purpose of these bills is just to make abortion more difficult, abortion illegal, and it's a cynical ploy. You're appealing to these emotions, et cetera, and, and it's not an issue. Well, here, here is, here's why it is an issue. I want to quote this. Senator Ben Sass said this uh, in, in terms, and this was when, when he was pushing for a similar bill uh, a few months back, a few years back. He said, uh, actually 2021, current federal law does not adequately protect a born child who survives an abortion. So he's saying federal law does not adequately protect them. My pro-life colleague, Reverend Patrick Mahoney, said there's something called the Abortion Survivors Network, which, by the way, on their website says over 17,000 babies have survived abortion. Over 17,000 babies have survived abortion since 1973. 
So Reverend Mahoney said there's something called the Abortion Survivors Network in which many children were born alive from late-term abortions and doctors didn't attempt to save their lives. And, and he said that the reason the proposed bill requires that the baby be brought to the hospital is that, quote, doctors would leave the children without any emergency medical care and they would die a, quote, natural death. Here, under this bill, doctors would be required to provide protection. Please don't tell me when you vote against it that your concern is the well-being of the infant. Please don't tell me that, because if you're concerned about the well-being of the infant, you would be pro-life and not pro-abortion. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. That is the number to call, 866-348-7884. I'll be getting to the phones in a little while. So again, good time to call now and look at some of the questions on my board here. Yeah, eager to get to your calls. Okay, so just back to this issue of, at the very least, at the very least, a baby survives an abortion and it has the possibility of living. And there are people who strong pro-life leaders. That's their story. They survived abortions and some with, with, with some disability as a result of it. But the, as, as miraculous as God's grace, they survived. And, and now you're not going to provide adequate care or have the law mandate. Well, it's there. No, it's not really there already. Not fully, not as fully as it needs to be. And let's, let's remember this, okay? It's 2019. Then Governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, himself with medical background, he's asked a question. It's, it's on a talk radio show. Well, here, let's, let's actually go to the clip. Listen, listen to what happens. There no exception. There was a very contentious committee hearing yesterday when Fairfax County Delegate Kathy Tran made her case for lifting restrictions on third trimester abortions as well as other restrictions now in place. And she was pressed by a Republican delegate about whether her bill would permit an abortion, even as a woman is essentially dilating, ready to give birth. And she answered that it would permit an abortion at that stage of labor. Do you support her measure and, and explain her answer. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I wasn't there, uh, Julie, and I, I certainly can't speak for uh, Delegate Tran, but um, I would tell you one uh, first thing I would say is this is why decisions such as this should be made by providers, uh, physicians, uh, and uh, the uh, mothers uh, and fathers that, that are involved. Um, there are, you know, when we talk about third trimester uh, abortions, these are done. Uh, with the consent uh, of obviously the, the mother, with the consent uh, of the physicians, more than one physician, by the way. Um, and it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities, there may be a, a, a fetus that's non-viable. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. 
the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. So, so I think this was really blown out of proportion. Mm. Did you hear that? Talk about blown out of proportion. He just exploded the whole thing. So baby's born. It's late-term abortion, right? Late-term birth, okay? Baby's born and severe deformities or something, some other problem, you know, major problems. Again, this is devastating to parents, to mother giving birth. It's obviously devastating. All right, I'm, I'm not minimizing the devastation at all. But he, here's what he says. So the, the infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physician's mother. Do we let it live or do we let it die? That's the discussion. Snopes.com, which is a left-leaning fact-checking website. So just remember, there's often bias in the fact-checking. They, they found the claim that Governor Northam said he would, quote, execute a baby after birth to be mostly false. They couldn't even say it's totally false. So this discussion, this stuff about infanticide is on the table. And let me just reference a Maryland bill, Pregnant Persons Freedom Act, um, that was defeated, but that would have allowed for infanticide. You, you press in and look at some of the things there, not just taking a healthy baby and say, we're just going to kill it, but finding reasons to allow certain babies to die. And, and then ACLJ reported September 27th of last year, Governor Newsom, California Governor Newsom, signed what amounts to a perinatal infanticide bill. AB 2223. Look it up for yourself. So you better believe there is a need for this Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And, and to me, if you've got a beating heart, you vote for this bill. Please, please don't cloak it in, well, it could be dangerous to debate. No, that's, that can't. With all respect, especially Representative Nadler, who said this, concern for that baby is obviously not at the top of your list because you would have had no problem if that same baby was successfully aborted. All right, so let, let's put the cards on the table. The issue is, and many other Democrat leaders have said this for the years, that they believe these bills are going to make abortion more difficult and that's the, or make them illegal in certain places. And that's why they oppose this. Don't, don't hide it. Don't be pro-abortion and say, but if the baby survives, we're very concerned about the health of the baby. Please, please, don't insult us by saying that. <clears throat> All right. Before I go to the phones, so I was asked, uh, I wasn't asked, or our team was asked on YouTube about uh, Nopalea, which we introduced to you yesterday uh, from Trivita. All right. And here, so uh, they, we referenced on the show yesterday a, a double-blind study published in a peer-reviewed journal Trivita sponsored this and said, hey, we, we want to get the medical data, all right? So it, I, I posted a link to yesterday's show on, on YouTube. I did it myself to, to get this out for you. It was published in the journal. The study was published in the journal Clinical Interventions in Aging, all right? And the conclusion stated that consumption of this, this uh, cactus, and Nopalea specifically, for eight weeks was associated with statistically significant improvements in joint mobility and physical functioning compared to the placebo group. 
Um, the, those that, that took this were more physically active. Daily activities were easier, including walking, sitting, lying. This was associated with reduced use of pain medication, possibly associated with anti-inflammatory properties of NFJ as suggested by, it goes on with technical details. Then I read a health website that did a critical review of this study and other studies that have been done on, on this, this nopal cactus and the key ingredient in nopalea. And this is what they stated. This is, again, just an impartial website that is, is critically reviewing everything. What is nopalea good for? Research suggests the nopal cactus juice in nopalea may be an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, antiviral, antibiotic, nerve cell protector, cholesterol reducer, cancer fighter, and blood sugar regulated. It may also help relieve symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. I'm hoping our director of operations can call in with her own story since she started taking this because, again, we're partnering with Trivita to spread the line of fire across the nation to help blanket the nation with the message and and to help you find greater wellness. In fact, let's uh, make sure you hear this. Take advantage of it. You can go right to the to the Internet or get right online or you can uh, call in. Here's the info about No Pelea. Take this in. Chronic inflammation is the greatest health threat to humanity. Infections, injuries, toxins, poor diet, and chronic stress can attack your immune system and lead to chronic inflammation. But now there's a solution you can fight this dangerous silent killer with, Nopalea. Made from the superfruit of the Nepal cactus, containing a unique group of bioflavonoids clinically shown to reduce chronic inflammation. In a random double-blind placebo-controlled study, it showed a reduction of elevated at-risk C-reactive protein levels, resulting in an improvement in range of motion in the back, neck, and joints, and an overall improvement in the quality of life. Nopalea has helped thousands of people by lowering levels of chronic inflammation. Learn how to get a free bottle of Nopalea by calling 800-568-9535. That's 800-568-9535. Nopalea is shown to help reduce inflammation, improve your mobility on range of motion, greater flexibility, and less dependency on pain medications. And Trivita will give a substantial portion of your order to help support the Line of Fire radio broadcast. Go to Trivita.com and use promo code BROWN30 in the shopping cart or call 800-568-9535. That's 800-568-9535. Yes, so go ahead and do that now. We've got a break coming up in a couple of minutes. Immediately after the break, I'm going straight to your calls. 866-348-7884. Be going straight to your calls. But go to the website, Trivita.com. Make sure you use the code BROWN30. By the way, if you didn't order nitric oxide last week that we talked about, go ahead and do it. Our thrust this month is let's get healthy. That's why we're playing these health-related ads during the show the month of January. You know, someone said, well, why, why have a sponsor at all? You know, why have someone that you work with? Well, if everyone that let, listened to radio uh, gave money to support radio for all different Christian ministries, then you wouldn't even have any advertising time at all. You just... But the sponsors help get the message out to you, so you should really be thankful for them. And remember, with every order to Trivita, they're giving a substantial portion back to get the line of fire on national radio, far bigger audience than we've ever had by God's grace, because the time is now. 
The time is now. Friends, when we talk to you about these pro-life issues, we, we want to, yeah, we want to get your blood boiling, but we want to get your faith rising and say, okay, we, we can bring about change. Come on. In, in, in our lifetimes, we've seen Roe v. Wade overturned. Oh, it's only part of a larger battle. But if you were around in the, in the 70s of the pro-life movement after Roe v. Wade in 73, you would have thought it's over. I, I mean, there's no way that it's done. It's done. It's like the nail in the coffin. And now it's been undone. And, and there are many states now that have pro-life legislation. And, and probably 10, 15,000 babies at least have been spared, have been saved, will we'll be living lives that they wouldn't have lived since some of these things come into place. And that's just the beginning. So we're helping equip, we're helping encourage, we're helping spread the word, and we're doing it together. It is a joint effort, as I say on a regular basis when I write to people. Together, we're making a difference. All right, back with you shortly, straight to the phones. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire. Great to be with you. Just checking out some interesting news during the break here, but it's too far afield to get into. As promised, we go straight to the phones, 866-348-788. Eight, four. Uh, let's go to Sam in Columbus, uh, Mississippi, or is it Columbus, Missouri? Mississippi. Yeah, all right, great. Welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for calling. Oh, thank you, Doctor. I appreciate your ministry very, very much, and thank you, uh, sir. your opinion pulls a lot of weight. Yes, sir. Thank you. My my question. I've, I've got a comment or two to make. Uh, mm-hmm. I am a. I, I am definitely a continuance person mm-hmm. uh but uh, but uh, so it may sound a little bit negative but it's 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 not but it is something that needs to be addressed that's hardly ever addressed we find that and and you can correct me if i'm if i'm wrong but basically there are three different tongues that the spirit can give one on the day of pentecost which was miraculously changing and they could understand in their own language which still happens sometime today mm-hmm. and then you have the one that's to be interpreted which was probably more useful then with a mixed bag of different people that speak different languages and could still be used today. But the one that I'm, I'm wanting to talk about is the one where the spirit prays and the mind is unfruitful, which um, one interpretation would be a private prayer language. And Paul, in, in, in the, the first Corinthians, he addresses that and tells the people that, you know, better to speak a few words, in a known language and thousands of words in an unknown tongue for the edification of the other people that you are edifying yourself. But you find that that is true. If someone comes in and it's like they've walked into a foreign deal and it is unnerving to people that are not continuance, that don't understand and that kind of thing. But we see that going on an awful lot where mm-hmm. even from the pulpit, the private prayer language is used. And how do we get around that? Of course, 
you know, we, we also have the other scripture, keep silent if no one is to interpret and stuff. Right, and, right. And that's a different tongue, in my opinion, and I think that I'm correct on that. Can you address that a little bit, what's going on, and 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 am I totally wrong in my assumption of, of these scriptures, and yeah. is it just error, or... Yep. Yeah, so so there there are some errors in practice, for sure. In other words, the tongues can be real, the gift can be real, the working of the Holy Spirit can be real, but there can be errors in practice, and that's what Paul is addressing. He never denied that the tongues the Corinthians were speaking in were real. He never denied that. He never downplayed the beauty yes. or value of tongues. It was it was a, in a proper place and setting, and in their setting, it was done in an abusive way. Whether there are three different types of tongues spoken about or not, let's just say for sure, at Pentecost, something happened which was, was unique where everyone heard foreign languages at, at one time. And yes, God does still do that. I know of instances with people that I'm, I'm friends with, colleagues with, that experienced that very thing or could testify to the very thing. They were eyewitnesses to it where someone spoke a language. They didn't know what they were saying. Other people heard, came to faith through it, their eyes, they were amazed. They're, how did you speak to me in my native language? But let's just say that, put it just in one other category, the, the tongue that is known only to God, right? So if you speak that publicly, it's of no value because no one understands it. That's what Paul says. Therefore, use it privately or with interpretation. So it's perfectly fine if you've got 20 believers gathering together for a time of prayer, right? And you're you're all praying in tongues for a while and and worshiping the Lord together and just seeking to to get in the spirit and get in harmony with God. And then as you feel led and burdened, you begin to pray out in English and others agree, right? So that's fine. You're around believers only and you're doing a particular thing. Or let's say you've got the worship team playing and the congregation worshiping. So you don't really hear the person next to you, you know, so maybe you've got a visitor from Germany, they're praising God in German, and a visitor on the other side there from Morocco, they're praising God in Arabic, and a visitor on another side there praising God in Spanish, they're from Mexico, and you're praising God in other tongues. It's all just one sound going up to God. I don't think that's the issue either. The issue would be if I get up behind the mic and I begin to speak in tongues for two minutes, and then just go into my message. It's like, well, where's the interpretation? Maybe you got built up doing that, but where's the interpretation? Or, uh, you know, everyone is silent and there's tongues and no interpretation. Now more tongues and no interpretation. Okay, if there's no interpretation, we should keep silent. So a lot of times we're just loose with this. We're, we're not scriptural with it. We, um, again, I'm all for the, the, the use of tongues in private and in certain settings with other believers, because Paul's concern is non-believers coming in or those who don't understand, right? Uh, but yes. yeah, it's just in a lot of our Pentecostal charismatic churches, we're, we're loose with it. There's the one extreme that forbids tongues and, and then the other extreme that, that forgets Paul's guidelines. So we, we just have to be more careful and more God-honoring. And uh, if, if I'm in public and, and we're all praying and uh, I'm you know, it's, it's a big prayer time, but I, I know it's a mixed audience and things like that. And, and I'm, you know, I've got the mic and everybody's praying out loud, maybe the worship team playing. I take the mic down if I'm praying in tongues uh, because that's no one's going to understand. And, and then when I'm ready to go or if there's an insight into what I'm praying for, then I'll take the mic back up. 
So a, a lot of critics throw the whole thing out as bogus because of a bad practice. Paul didn't do that. He just said, get your practices in better order. And that's what we need to do. Yes, yes. Well, you, you, touched, you touched on something. One reason I addressed it. You've got the sensationalist bunch that are literally anti-Pentecostal or anti-tongues, and they'll you know show films to people. And let me tell you, more people know about that than know about the real moves of God. And, of course, they don't use any real scripture in, in what they're doing, but, but we're giving them an awful lot of ammunition for this kind of thing. So I rub shoulders with a lot of people that we would, 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 would are neutral, neutral. And, but they won't even bring it up because it's so almost like, wow. But they do see these things, and yeah. particularly people that are, yeah. And so all I'm saying is there's an awful lot of ammunition out there yes, sir. that gets distorted, and then the door's closed for people that, you know. Yeah, so and, and by the way, that, tongue, uh, abuse of tongues is one part, right? But how about other things that are more extreme? Or, or false prophecies, right? Or, or proclamations of healings that aren't real, or carnal fundraising, stuff like that. Yeah, that's where I wrote the book, Playing with Holy Fire, in 2018, a wake up call to the Pentecostal Charismatic Church. And I say this is one that's, you know, Pentecostal Charismatic to, to the core. But the good thing we can do, Sam, is say, well, let's start with Scripture. <clears throat> let's start with Scripture. Because Paul never discounted the reality of the Spirit's working and actually praised the Corinthians in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians 1 for not lacking any spiritual gifts. So he actually commended them, but then addressed the false practices. And they had other issues. They had doctrinal issues. They had moral issues. They had issues of division, etc. in their midst. But he never denied the reality of the Spirit. One last thing. People say, well, the what, what you're speaking is just gibberish. Actually, Paul said that tongues will sound like gibberish. In King James, will sound like a barbarian. In other words, it's someone's just going bar, bar. That's where, that's where barbarian came from. We'll sound like a foreigner. So I've been in meetings and overseas, and someone's translating for you. I'm thinking, that can't possibly be a language. You're just like making up sounds. Or, how is that a language? And I've studied a lot of languages, right? So tongues, foreign languages in general, often sound like gibberish to someone from the outside. And that's, that's Paul's issue there. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. May we step higher and do better. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Bob in Maryland. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. You hey. recently discussed a scenario that uh, involves a young girl being sexually assaulted and becoming pregnant. Yeah. It's, uh, I believe, fortunately quite rare, but it is a terrible situation. Um, but it's thrown about very commonly, and I think it contains doublespeak like you were addressing earlier in this sense. Um, the first time I heard this used many years ago was with uh, the Vice President Dan Quayle, where, I don't know if it was a reporter, but someone actually brought a preteen girl who obviously had been coached to say, if I were raped and were pregnant, would you force me to carry the child? And uh, it's always occurred to me that the answer to that seems that if, if a conception takes place, that delivery of a child is the natural result, that there's no force involved unless you introduce a surgical instrument. That's where the force comes in. Mm. So it's kind of a double speak and, or maybe you could call it Orwellian new speak to put the use of force 
on those who want the child to live as opposed to those who are using force to destroy it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's, it's a great observation, sir, and it puts us on the defensive in terms of well, why are you forcing someone to do something? Again, it's, it's an agonizing situation, and it's incredibly rare for the person involved. It's, it's their life, but it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly rare in terms of statistically. And, and women that have abortions because of rape and incest, it's well under 1%, let alone a, a minor so, I mean, the, the overall numbers of people having abortions for this are extremely low, although for that person, it's, it's a massive trauma. But, yeah, it's, it's just like referring to abortion as reproductive rights. It's like, we're not talking about reproductive yes. rights. We're talking about terminating the life of a baby in the womb. Um, but, yeah, force the child. No, you're going to force something on the child surgically, chemically. We're saying let the child don't punish the baby because of the sin of the rapist. As horrible as the yep. sin is, as traumatic it's as it is. Two wrongs don't make a right. Right. And, and again, every case is different. But we've had people call and, and say, listen, it, it didn't heal the pain. That's what they did. They, they, they were raped. They had an abortion. They said it didn't make the pain go away. That's their story. Again, I'm not putting this on others. And then others... Uh, People who've had ministries that have touched millions of people, like my, my dear friend James Robison, he was conceived in rape. His mother would have aborted him. God intervened. Jerry Hill, the wife of the late evangelist Steve Hill, she and her husband touched millions. She was conceived in rape. So these are human beings whose lives have made a mark. Take them out of the world. The world's different, yet they were conceived in rape. Hey, Bob, thank you for the call. I appreciate it very much. We'll be right back. 866 866- Three, four, truth. Straight to your calls on the other side of the break. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, we go back to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. Oh, do you get my emails? I'll keep asking until every one of you does. Go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. You'll know when I'm speaking in your area. You'll know when we've got a new resource available. You'll know all of our articles that come out every week, videos. You'll, you'll find out about that. We'll let you know more about the ways we can serve you, more about my own story from LSD to PhD. So go to the website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and click to subscribe for our emails. All right, let's go over to Yael in Manchester, New Hampshire. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, I'm Dr. Brown. Hey, so I have a question in relation to what's called communion. Mm-hmm. Now, when I go to the Brit Hadashah and I see that Yeshua is, he's saying, do this in remembrance of me, but it's, he's referring, he was referring to Pesach. Mm-hmm. So what, how, how did that turn into a, 
is like a Sunday thing every week. Like it, it, it's almost as if the Pesach isn't involved. You know, uh, the, 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 the Christians, and, and I ask this because I'm going to a church, they, they do it as a way to repent, and it's a part of their repentance, and this priest hands them a thing. How did that happen? How did it go from Pesach, do Pesach in remembrance of me, where Rabbi Shaul says, oh, do, you know, when, when you do Pesach, you do it with the, obviously, you know, in a different way now, because we know that Yeshua has filled this. So how did, how did communion come to be? Yeah. So uh, the first thing is that it's instituted at, at the Passover, as at Pesach, as, as you said. But then as believers would gather together, it wasn't just a Sunday thing. As believers would gather together, it became customary, just something that developed, and I believe by the Spirit, uh, it became customary for them to regularly remember the death and resurrection of Yeshua, to regularly remember his body and blood and the price that was paid for our sins. Uh, and it was normally in the context of a meal. Uh, the New Testament refers to love feasts. So it was common that believers would come together for worship, for teaching in the word, and for fellowship around the breaking of bread, around the meal. And in that meal, they would regularly partake of, of communion together, of this remembrance of the Lord. It could be daily, it could be weekly, but it was at, at their regular gatherings, they did it. In, in fact, it wasn't the way we do it now with just you know, a little piece of a wafer or something and a little, little cup of, of grape juice representing the wine or a little wine. Uh, it, it was something that was, uh, that was part of a meal. You know, so the bread, the bread that the table would represent his body, the, the wine, which is just customary in meals, not for, not for drunkenness, but just customary in meals, would be drunk. Then that's, that's why Paul uh, criticizes some of the Corinthians and said, you know, you're, you're getting there early, you're drinking the wine, you're getting drunk, you're eating all the bread, you're eating all the food, and, and poor people come, they got nothing to eat. And, and now this is also supposed to be part of something consecrated to the Lord. So that's the first step. Just when they gathered together, it became something they did. It's not just annually, but on a regular basis, a spiritual celebration. And then over the centuries, different church traditions developed different things. The Catholic Church developed the concept of transubstantiation, that the, the wafer and the wine literally became the body and the blood, which is, is why you don't chew on the, the wafer, because it's literally the, the body of, of Jesus. And these other traditions developed, which I see as, as not scriptural. Uh, but what we do today... Uh, some congregations do it monthly, some do it weekly. Uh, ideally, it would be part of our regular gatherings in homes together, uh, celebrated in the context of a meal. In some churches, the emphasis is on repentance. In some churches, the emphasis is on receiving God's life for, for healing and blessing. But always the emphasis is remembering. And we can't do that enough. It, it would be fine to do it every day. You know what I'm saying? It, there'd be nothing in Scripture that says if you're gathering together with believers that you couldn't receive communion every single day to remember. Uh, but it just became, because there was no law. Remember, we're not under a, the equivalent of the Sinai Covenant in the New Testament. So there wasn't a specific law about when to do it, and therefore it developed to be done frequently in remembrance of the body and blood of Jesus. And I think it's, it's healthy to, to do it frequently. Okay, thank you for that. Now, is it only that the 
the pastor or bishop or priest, are they the only one? Do they do Christians think that they're the only ones that can administer this? This in, uh, in some circles, Christians do believe that. In other words, there are Christian traditions that the priest or the pastor is the only one that can do it. But I don't see that scripturally. I don't see any scriptural basis for that. And certainly in the early church, it was not the custom uh, because the believers, were, as I said, were gathering for meals in their homes. So this is not something like someone's going to get up and teach from the Bible. Well, they better know what the Bible says before they do that, right? Or someone is going to uh, lead a ministry. Well, they better know what they're doing before they're leading. But this is not a matter of leading. This is not a matter of, of being the instructor. This is a matter of together saying, all right, let's, let's do this. And if you've learned how to, you know, so you read 1 Corinthians 11, you know, if you like, and key passage there, and, 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 you know, Lord, thank you for the bread. We remember the body of Jesus. Remember the sacrifice for us, the price that was paid. You eat together. And then the, the wine or the grape juice, Lord, we, we remember the blood that was shed. We remember how we're, we're cleansed. We thank you. for, And you eat it. No reason why it can't be done in, in a home setting or small group setting without a senior pastor or a priest or a bishop there. Absolutely. It, it should be celebrated widely. That's my view. So thank you very much for the questions. Much appreciated, Yael. Thank you, Dr. Brown. All right. You're welcome. God bless. Hey, so if you missed it earlier, just want to remind you that the, the promo code BROWN30, when you go to Trivita.com, that works for any product there. You get, you get a discount. Uh, you get the free copy of, of Michael Ellison's book, 10 Habits of Wellness. And then a substantial portion of the order goes to spread the line of fire across America on the radio airwaves. So that it's not just for this week for No Pelea, uh, but check that out. Check it, read about these, find out about them. Remember, all orders come with a money back guarantee. Uh, or you can call 1-800-568-9535. Tell them Dr. Brown sent you. one 800 568-9535. As we've talked about Nopalea, check these things out and, and see if they work for you. Because I, I really believe, again, they're not substitutes for healthy eating and other things. But I really believe these supplements will be helpful to you. I'll tell you about a different one uh, next week, actually. But uh, there are three that I've, that I've been using, sent to me by Trivita, that they've improved the quality of my life. So I'm, I'm blessed and sharing it with you. All right. With that, uh, let's go to Ms. J in Greensboro. All right, I think you may have your radio on or something. So if you just take a second to go ahead and turn that off, all right, so that there's no, you're just talking to me on the phone with nothing else in the background. Let's try this again. Uh, Ms. J, are you there in Greensboro? Uh, yes, I am. How are you? Doing great, doing great. Go ahead, please. Well, I wanted to speak on behalf of the lady was speaking about the communion. Yeah. I do the communion. I started off with the church, and once I my relationship was growing stronger with God, I did it at my home with other friends, and I would pick um, pick my friends in a in a little cup, and then I would take the number from them and invite them to dinner, and then we would break bread, and then we would talk about God. Sweet. Then it turned into me, just me and the Lord um, doing fellowship together, and it helped me with my spirit of repentance, and it helped me with my Weaken of my flesh to do it that way. <laughs> that was the first thing I wanted to share. All right, and the thanks. other thing was I had an experience on um, speaking in tongues. I was a new 
some votes coming in um, from the street, some uh, long list of different things coming in. I'm kind of nervous. It's my first time calling in for you. Um, and we did a shepherd's gathering, and I was on the committee with that, and they did it every seasonal. And um, and they had the high, one of the great, the high bishops or whatever apostle that was going to speak. And it was my pastor's um, overseer, the one who had trained him when he was younger coming up. And so we went into a high praise, um, doing praise and worship, and then things, it, it went on for about maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then it came down and came to a settle. And then they asked was, um, is there an interpreter? What, what, what was being said? And I was so scared because I heard the Spirit of the Lord because my relationship had gotten so strong with him. Say, yes, tell them to go and feed my sheep. Oh, my God. So I stuck my hand up shaking, and I told them that, and I got rebuked for it. <laughs> I got rebuked for, but when the when the speaker of the night was coming out, he said, "Where is that young lady that um that they asked um that for the interpretation and she gave it?" And I thought he was—I didn't know what to do. I was about ready to run out. And um, so I I raised my hand and stood up. He said, "You are exactly right. That's exactly what God <laughs> said." And he closed the whole sermon up. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my God!" <laughs> I just wanted to, to share that with you. Yeah, thank well, you thank, for your ministry. Thank you. I, I love the spirit, the enthusiasm behind this. We, we've just got thirty seconds. You got it in perfectly. But but I love that you stepped out in faith, and then the first person rebuked you. They are obviously in error, and then someone came and confirmed. The, the word that was spoken. I think we've, we've all had that scary ground of stepping out and it looks like we failed only to find out, no, it was God. It was the Lord. Hey, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Friends, tomorrow going to be talking with a scientist who says young earth creation is scientifically accurate and he's got some arguments for it. So we have a fascinating conversation tomorrow. Another program powered by the Truth Network.